Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 66. Are you ready to practice your Python skills some more? There's a new set of practice problems prepared for you to tackle. And this time, they're based on working with CSV files. This week on the show, David Amos is back, and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. David shares an article about functional programming, the focus on the filter function. The tutorial covers how to process an iterable and extract the items that satisfy a given condition, but also covers combining filter with other functional tools and compares it to coding with Pythonic tools like list comprehensions and generator expressions. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including Excel, Python, and the Future of Data Science, a Bayesian analysis of Lego prices in Python, why can't comments appear after a line continuation character, teaching Python on the Raspberry Pi 400 at the public library, a cross-platform editor designed for writing novels built with Python and Qt, and a text user interface which uses Rich as the renderer. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean's app platform. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David. Hey, Chris. Good to have you back coming on the show and covering much more PyCoders weekly stuff. Yeah, absolutely. This week, got a, a couple real Python things and then kind of a whole bunch of interesting stuff that's leaning toward the project area, which I'm, I'm excited about. Yeah. Again, stuff we, we kind of keep hitting things that we've talked about before and kind of excited about that too, to kind of follow up on some topics we've touched on. Yeah. So what, what do you got first? So my first one comes from the website InfoWorld. It's by Matt Assay, I think is how you say his last name. It's called Excel, Python, and the Future of Data Science. And I just I've got to put a kind of a disclaimer out there that uh, if if you go look at this article, there there are a lot of ads and pop-ups. So just be aware of that. I think they only give you like one free article a month and then you you're paywalled. But it was a really thought-provoking article. So if you can get through all that, it's I, I do think it's it's worth it. So the article is about kind of Python and or really Python versus Excel and what the future of data science and Python might look like or, or data science in general. And it starts with kind of an interesting tidbit of, of information that kind of seems surprising. If you think about, you know, what if someone were to ask you, like Chris, if, if, if I were to ask you, what do you think the most widely used tool in data science is? What, what would you, like off the top of your head, what would you probably say? Well, I think, I think we might even have touched on this before, but I think it it probably is still Excel. Yeah, <laughs> it's also like one of the largest databases. <laughs> which yeah, is crazy. It's, yeah, it's definitely like yeah, one of the largest databases. I think though, you know, when people hear the word data science, they think like a data scientist, right? Like someone who's actually doing data science. Sure. And they're probably like their interaction with Excel is probably at this point. I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I I would venture a guess that. 
that their interaction with Excel is something like they've been sent a spreadsheet of data and they need to extract that and get it into something else. They might be using Python, they might be using R, they might be using something something else. You know, but this is like a practicing data scientist, right? Sure. But Excel is being used to analyze data and gain insights from data from people who are not data scientists. And so in a sense, it's enabling non-technical people to do some data science-like activities, you know, small business owners and even large business owners that uh, that don't have a technical background. It's very easy or, or very, maybe easy is not the right word, but it's it's very... I don't know. In some ways, it's really available. Like it's the it's tool available. that's installed on everybody's machine. I have friends that, you know, work for like a department of health. Right. And, you know, that's already there. And so that's the tool that's in front of them and they make it work you know, and which is kind of amazing in some ways that, yeah, that they can kind of twist it to do all the things that they want to do. Um, it may not be the, the simplest way to do it, you know? Well, but there's a lot of, you know, it's got kind of a point and clicky kind of interface for a lot of right. this stuff. You can, you know, highlight a couple of columns in a, in a worksheet and quickly generate some kind of graph or visualization or, you know, look at, look at your data in a, in a different way and start asking and potentially answering questions. So in that sense, you know, you can't say Excel is the probably the most used tool in data science. And this article talks with kind of interviews Peter Wang, from, who's the CEO of Anaconda, of Anaconda Python. And he talks about his vision for the future of Python and the, the PyData ecosystem. It's not about like Python versus R, or, you know, some other language like that. In his mind, it's really about taking on Excel and how can we take the power and the tools and and the open source structure of the Python data ecosystem and put it in the hands of non-technical people. So anyways, it's just, it's a really kind of fascinating look, I thought, and and kind of thought-provoking about, you know, where where all this is headed and what, uh, I guess, specifically Peter's vision for it is. I know he's not the only one that has this vision. So so it is, I think, worth a read. It's not a technical article. It's not a tutorial or anything. But really, it was just kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's time for Python to kind of uh, tackle this. If, if we want to get those tools in people's hands, you know, this is kind of the direction we need to be heading. Otherwise, it's just going to stay, even though it's, you know, it's immensely popular, the Python data ecosystem, it's going to stay only in the hands of kind of the trained data scientists and and those people. Right. We keep talking about how people inside of organizations sort of develop these superpowers that other people notice them using something like Python and, you know, like think that they have these magical skills now. Part of that is just getting that hurdle uh, of like your Python basics book, like, you know, getting things set up and, right. and going and doing your initial programs and, and so forth. And flattening that curve is is a goal of real Python in general. Like, yeah. how can we get people in and, and using these tools and make things more approachable? And I, that's one big advantage of, you know, like the, talked about Anaconda, the, the distribution of like a whole sort of ecosystem as opposed to it piecemeal. There's, definitely different approaches on on all that so i i I still feel like yeah we can bend this curve even more so it'll be interesting i feel like we're there though like i feel like it's starting to happen just like in these little steps and so forth some of the other things we'll talk about today with interface tools and things like that so yeah yeah cool what you got so mine is a real python article and it is 
kind of on a theme. Um, you might remember we had Jim Anderson on in episode 27, and he was talking about uh, preparing for an interview with Python practice problems. Yeah. And he, you know, discussed the process of creating this whole thing and looking at multiple solutions. And, and I think the main idea was we want to give you these problems and then have you think about them. And so there's a whole sort of show hide portions of the article where you can kind of decide if you want to see the answer or if you really want to go ahead and work through it before you can do your comparison with it. And this follows that structurally. In this case, he's the focus is on CSV files. And so it's Python practice problems, parsing CSV files. One thing that I got a little tripped up on is I was like looking for the the quote unquote CSV files. But in this case, it's focused a little differently in the sense that you're starting with the concept of test-driven development. And if you're not familiar with that, this kind of takes you through some of it. It also provides a bunch of links to additional articles. Like we, I think we mentioned Dane Hillard had a really good one recently about test-driven development and, mm-hmm. and using PyTest, which is kind of the tool that's being used here. And so instead of you know like full on CSV files, you're sort of mocking a lot of that up with something called a PyTest fixture. And the the fixtures we might have mentioned that term also this idea of like pre organized data that you're going to use, and then you can kind of predict and already know the results of you know so that your tests can pass. So it's a very different approach on the practice problem theme. You know, not only are you getting to work with how can I easily parse. CSV files using tools that are built into Python, but then there's like four sort of scenarios that you're going to get a chance to kind of practice. That's funny because we're building off of a, an Excel article, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can export your Excel stuff into CSV and be right along here. So yeah, the first problem that's described is parsing football scores. This would be the world definition of football, of <laughs> soccer <laughs> versus yeah. the American-centric one. And you're writing a program that's going to take the file name on a command line and then process the contents of the CSV. The program's going to determine which team had the smallest goal differential. So like between goals that team scored versus that were scored upon it. And so those two numbers are like subtracted and then you're taking kind of the the overall value to, to see, you know, which team had the smallest one so that they're, they're, they were closest together. Those own goals versus uh, goals against them. So it's kind of interesting, just kind of the the math there isn't super complex, but you are still going to need to go through and kind of parse things line by line and, and so forth. So I'm not going to spoil it because you should work through these problems. And then in there, you're getting the problem solution that the RealPython team went through. And next one is about weather data really popular at this moment because everything's just crazy heat wave. (laughs) The two of us are still kind of on the Western part of the U S and we're sweltering away here. That one is about taking the average days, uh, high and low temperature and comparing them. Your program should determine which day had the highest average temperature. So that one, you're kind of working with just a slightly different set of data and kind of going through it. Then you do a refactoring, figuring out how to make all these things a little more efficient by maybe reusing a lot of the CSV parsing that you were doing, which is a, a, you know structurally something you should eventually kind of think about. You might come up with a simple solution initially, but now you're going to kind of come back and then think about, okay, well, 
you know, how could I, I, I have a solution that can reuse parts across multiple other things? And then the last one is instead of using some of the built-in Python CSV tools, you're going to do CSV parsing with pandas. We've had actually a bunch of really interesting courses come out based around pandas uh, lately. And so I'll, I'll provide links to those uh, if you're looking for some additional um, skills to work on. And, and um, one was the gradebook project recently came out. And that one has a lot of really kind of fun tools that you're learning to practice and use there. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's another version of what we were talking about before of let's practice your Python. And here we're giving you a bunch of things to, for you to get a chance. And then you can kind of reveal these solutions as you go along and check how you did. Yeah, exactly. It's a really neat format. I think it's not a tutorial. I mean, I guess you could kind of consider the solutions yeah. in some sense, because he does, Jim does, you know, explain the solutions, which is kind of funny that, you know, it's it's a rare thing on real Python where the the bulk of the text in this article is hidden when you first, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you, it looks small, <laughs> first look at it, it looks small. And then you open, you open the, like the solution box and, and, you know, it's got a full explanation in it and, uh, walks you through uh, everything. And some, some of them have multiple solutions for you to, to look at, but, uh, yeah, it's a really, it's a really neat format. And I think that you, you hear people talk about this idea of, you know, getting stuck in tutorials. And I, I think that it's, there's a need in general for different kinds of content, you know, that it's, yeah, and, you know, that goes beyond the tutorial to like, okay, this is giving you a chance to, you know, here's a problem, you can practice it, and then you can compare notes with uh, one or two uh, solutions that we've come up with that are fully explained. You're actually getting to do something yourself. So it's, um, yeah, it's a really neat format. I really like it. I think Jim does a great job at these. Like you said, it's the second one he's, he's done at this point. I think I hope that we'll have uh, have more coming coming down the pipeline. Yeah, it's funny. I have a question for you. Um, do you, when you approach a tutorial or like maybe a book that's filled with these types of projects that they're kind of walking you through step by step, do you ever try to go off in advance and, and try to do the thing before you read the explanation? You ever attempt that on your own? Uh, like if I'm actually reading a, a tutorial, yeah. You're like, oh, I see what they're going to try to do here. Let me let me see if I can uh, hack it out myself. You know, actually, I don't think I've ever really really done that. Usually, if I'm following a tutorial, I'm just going through it kind of step by step and 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 following along. I have done quite a bit where like you get done with a tutorial, tutorial, and then it's like, okay, what could I do to kind of like build on this? You know, where could I take this? Yeah. But no, it's uh, that's interesting. I don't know what that says about me, but uh, <laughs> no, I haven't really. Really done that. <laughs> I I've recently started to do that. Just occasionally, like like I'm like, okay, I see what they're trying to do. Like I, I see a pattern that this author has, and they like to do this. And, and I'm like, I think they're going to try to do this again. So I'm going to go try to work ahead. Yeah, and see if I can kind of solve it a little bit. And I'm not going deep far ahead because I may not have the domain knowledge, but I can kind of like start to suss some of it out. Mm-hmm. And so I think your your solution for like kind of making a tutorial a little fresher of like, all right, well, you know, how can you expand or expound upon this mm-hmm. thing of that you're created is kind of interesting. And then, you know, like the, my idea of like going ahead. The other one that I've done that has been interesting is if it's like a video tutorial, mm-hmm. often I will watch all of it, um, maybe because I'm in a different circumstance, you know? Yeah. 
you know, I'm right. on a treadmill or something or whatever, you know, and so forth. And so I try to keep all of it in my head. Yeah. And then try to go do it. Oh, yeah. I've done that a lot. Yeah. Where like you read something or watch something and you don't necessarily follow along exactly. Yeah. Like with it. But you and then you go back and you try to recreate that. Yeah, I've done that. I have done that a lot. And actually, in the Python Basics book, we actually have uh, some exercises okay. in some cha- in some chapters that so e- like every section has exercises more. Or less. There's like a couple of rare sections that don't have exercises, but but there are a couple of of sections where you kind of like build something. And one of the exercises is to go back and try to rebuild it without looking at anything in the in the chapter. Nice, uh, and just see like what you've retained, like what. And if you don't remember something, try to try to do it, like try to solve it on your own. And so, yeah, that's a really great uh, learning technique. I like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of ways you could kind of not make it be so step-by-step is yeah. I guess what I'm trying to imply. If you're a- afraid of like, you know, letting go <laughs> for a minute and trying some of this stuff out, there's a, there's, you know, a handful of techniques that somebody could kind of try to expand upon their, their uh, step-by-step tutorial habit. <laughs> yeah. DigitalOcean's app platform is a new platform-as-a-service solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let app platform do all the heavy lifting related to infrastructure. Get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. Well, what do you got next? Next one I've got comes from Austin Rockford, I, I believe, or maybe it's Ro- Roachford. I'm not sure. Okay. So this it's a fun article called A Bayesian Analysis of Lego Prices with Python with PyMC3. <laughs> it's and, perfect for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know how much we've talked about my Lego <laughs> obsession on this. Anybody but, who follows uh, you on but Twitter if, yeah, should if know. If anyone follows me on Twitter, they've seen me post like the, the, you know, my builds and stuff. So this immediately caught my attention. It's, you know, math and stats and Lego and Python. So it's like, you know, perfect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> confluence <laughs> of, of yeah. things that, uh, that I, that I enjoy. It's, it's a really interesting article. So, and it, it's actually a, a, a second in a series of posts that, uh, that he has written analyzing Lego pricing data scraped from the website brickset.com. And, in the first post, he gives like an empirical analysis of whether or not a Lego set, it's a, in particular, it's a Star Wars set, like whether or not it's a fair price. Cause uh, when he was looking at it to order it, it was like 70 bucks and it's not a big set. It's 663 pieces, which for a, for a Lego set is not massive. And he thought, wow, that seems a bit steep. So he tried to answer this question, like what, what is a fair price for this? So he's got this kind of empirical analysis that he's done. And then in this article, he does a much more statistical analysis. And it is very technical. And uh, he does some explanation of some of the math that's going on, but not a lot. So it it is assumed that you have, you know, kind of a a stats background, but Mm -hmm. it's full of code and really walks you through walking through a Bayesian analysis of, of something, which is really, really neat. And it also uses a, an interesting 
project called Pi MC3, which we featured in PyCoders. We haven't talked about it on the on the podcast. It is a tool for doing probabilistic programming in Python. So they describe it as it allows you to write down models using an intuitive syntax to describe a data generating process. It's just kind of neat. That was the first time, you know, I found I found this project and was like, this looks really cool. And, you know, I've I've thought about probabilistic programming in the past. I've never done much of it, but it was neat to see a Python package. And this is the first time that I came across uh, an article or a project that was actually uh, using it. So uh, I thought that was kind of neat. It's it's a it's a really cool article. Like I said, I really like finding these examples of kind of an end-to-end analysis. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get a sense for like, you know, what is this person, like what is their thought process? How are they, how are they thinking about tackling this problem? What kinds of things are they looking at? Do they, do they shift? Like, do they find something that surprises them that sort of, you know, shifts some kind of hypothesis and, and they, you know, have to kind of change the way they're approaching it, things like that. And yeah, so this is just a really, really nice walkthrough of an end-to-end analysis of whether or not this particular Lego set is fairly priced. And what's interesting is he, in particular, he's looking at a Star Wars set. And I think anyone who has purchased Lego, you know, like official Lego realizes or knows that the, not sponsored, but like the what's the what's the word the sets that are licensed the disney licensed thank you that's the word i'm looking for the licensed sets uh are generally more expensive than than the non-licensed sets and so yeah it was like harry potter star wars if you look at it on like a, a brick a brick by brick comparison you know you might be paying several cents more for you know a small brick in a licensed set then that same brick would cost in a non-licensed set so there's like kind of just interesting factors that you have to take into account if, with all of this and so yeah it's just a really fun article it's got lots of cool uh, examples of plots and you know uh, there's lots of scatter plots and talking about you know how he how he's using those scatter plots which i think is another kind of neat thing you see you see a lot of tutorials that are like, here's how you, you know, make a scatter plot in, in Matplotlib or Seaborn or whatever, or here's how you, uh, you know, look at it, how's, how you generate a histogram. But unless you've taken a statistics course, or even not just a statistics course, but more of like a, you know, mathematical modeling course or things like that, it's not always clear how you're supposed to actually use those plots. <laughs> <laughs> or like when, yeah, lay out the axes and yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a fun, fun article. And yeah, if you like stats and you like Lego and you like Python, <laughs> you'll probably like like the article. <laughs> you'll be down for this one. Yeah. 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 Cool. All right. Well, my next one's a, a real short one. And it builds on one that we covered last last time. We were talking about black and Wukush Longa's recent little blog post he had that was about the sad face dedent. Yeah. And I feel like it's very much related to that in a sense that how black is formatting things within brackets, you know, again, it could be parentheses squares or curly or whatever, but the idea that they're kind of given line by line and, and so forth. And so this is a stack overflow question thread and it starts with why can't comments appear after a line continuation character if you're not familiar with a line continuous character, it's 
in as you're writing something in Python, if you are needing to, I don't know, this whole line is going to go past. So let's say you've set up your editor at like it should wrap at like 80, I think is common, but I think even under that might be more common, like characters across. Um, and so you might decide, all right, at this point is where I feel like it should break. And so you'd put like a slash to, to indicate that. And so this person was like, well, if I put a slash there, kind of like maybe a little earlier, I also might want to put a, a comment. And Python doesn't allow for that. It, it, it doesn't, it can't parse that. Like there's really not anything you should put after the line break. And so the most popular solution that kind of came up was, well, you should probably, uh, if you want to try to do something like this, you want to go line by line, breaking something down, uh, similar to how we were just talking about it was done inside of black. In that case, then you probably should go ahead and put things in a, a pair of parentheses. And in that case, you can, you kind of white space again, doesn't matter, which is really nice. And you can actually just drop in comments with a hashtag inside there to, uh, you know, normal inline comments that you would use in Python. You could put them right inside and yeah. it's, it's pretty slick. And it, it, Again, some of the advantages of doing it that way, you know, follow from that other article, you know, the sort of the consistency, the readability, sort of the, the developer efficiency, which we mentioned, like the idea of minimizing diffs. And you probably have seen things like this before. Like, I think we mentioned that, you know, not only can it be that, you know, the arguments or the values in a list or, you know, making out the items in a dictionary or what have you that you're kind of breaking them line by line. but one of the other ones that I, I that kind of is related is we've been talking about pandas a lot off and on here. The idea of like chaining yeah. commands, um, which is something that I, I used to practice a lot with R that has like this pipe kind of operator thing that would allow you to like take one process and then the result of that do this and then do this. And inside pandas, you can do a lot of that with just a dot and continue on. And that would be a really common place where you'd want to drop a note. Like, what are you doing here <laughs> right. with this next step? You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sort and then I'm going to sum and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And then in, instead of those being like all separate kind of messy looking calls one after another, you could have it sort of stacked up and, and have the dots all in alignment. And it's, you know, it's a pretty slick way to do it. And I definitely have been seeing that more often. But the problem is, if you want to accomplish that, you probably, if you're going to, you know, break things out line by line like that, you would use, again, parentheses to kind of uh, sort of make that a whole block of code together. Right. It's a technique that I think gets overlooked in a lot of, like, tutorials and a lot of, you know, when you're when you're learning Python, this, you know, using parentheses it's it's a it's a different kind of use of parentheses. It's basically yeah. creating like a block where kind of everything in that block is sort of you can you can you can move things around the way you want. You can put things on different lines, and at the end, it's basically just going to you know snap everything together and sort of suck all the white space. Right? Out. Yeah. In, in, a, <laughs> in a sense, like that's one way to think about it. And it also works for strings, which is right. where I've. Use the two most common places that I've used this is like in pandas when you have to chain a bunch of methods together on like a data frame. And, and then also when I want to write like a paragraph of text in, in my code that doesn't fit on a single line. And I don't want 
you know, you could use like the, the triple quoted strings, which you see for like doc strings, but those preserve white space. So you have to be like, if you get to the end of the line, you hit enter. Well, that new line character is in there. Like it, it's in any indentation you do, like it, it just preserves all the white space in the, in the string. So if you want to not preserve the white space, you want it to be one continuous string you can do this and it's like, like an implicit concatenation, basically. You don't have to use the concatenation operator, things like that. So yeah, it's just a really, it's a really neat technique, uh, something to be, to be aware of, and it can really help make your code look a little bit nicer. Yeah. The readability is like a huge factor of it. I think, you know, like, especially if you're going to, if you're going to chain things, you know, chain object methods, uh, or you're going to, like you said, do something with text or you want to, you know, have, comments next yeah, exactly. <laughs> to items and so forth it, it gets parsed in a, in a, a, very, a different way which yeah. is great so what do you got next next one i've got is another real python article from our good friend leodanis pozo ramos the probably at this point the most prolific real python author <laughs> he's uh, super prolific time. yes and this one's called python's filter extract values from iterable so this is all about the filter function which is one of the built-in functions in in Python. And it's a very in-depth, thorough discussion on what filter is. So I think we've talked about, well, I know we've talked about in the past. We did map. uh, We did map. Yeah. And I know we've talked about like functional programming style. So this kind of falls into, there's like this map filter reduce sort of like trio of functions. And we've got the reduce one, I believe that one has been published. Yeah, we've got the the one for reduce, we've got the one for map, and now we have the one for filter. So we've got that trio covered. And it's it's a similar, I guess, structure to the other ones. It, you know, you get introduction to kind of what the functional style is and uh, understanding like what a filtering problem is. So let's say you've got a list of numbers and you want to extract from that list only the positive numbers or only the even numbers or you know, I don't know, numbers that are prime or multiple of three or some, something like that. You know, it's very common. This is, this is a very, very common problem. You know, the numbers example is also common, but this shows up in many, many different ways. You need to filter some kind of list or some kind of uh, sequence or, or iterable on some kind of condition. So filter is one way to do that. And you get a full walkthrough of, you know, how you use filter to solve those kinds of problems. But then there's also a discussion of combining filter with other tools. So you get to see how kind of map and filter can work together, how you can combine filter with reduce. And there's also a discussion of a a different kind of filter function from the iter tools module called filter false, which is kind of doing like the inverse of the filter function. So the filter is like, I'm going to pull out all the elements of some iterable for which something is true and filter false does the opposite it pulls out all the elements in an iterable for which something is is false so that is a variant on that you get to see that and then there's a, a discussion about pythonic style and you know should you always use filter i mean you can there's certainly nothing wrong with that but you can also achieve the same thing in a lot of cases with a list comprehension and, you know, you can argue one way or the other, is that more readable? Is it less readable? You know, list comprehensions, comprehensions in general, one of those things that could be very confusing for beginners, especially if you don't come from like, say, a more mathematical background. 
you know, for me, when I first saw a list comprehension, it was like, this looks exactly like set builder notation that we use in mathematics all the time. And so it was very easy for me to wrap my head around that because I'd, I'd seen a very similar style and a very similar structure and had already gotten over the, you know, the learning curve for that. But yeah, so it just talks about, you know, the difference between those two styles and how you would rewrite some of the things you've seen in filter using list comprehensions, things like generator expressions, which is like a generator comprehension in a way and things like that. So yeah, it's just, it's a, like I said, it's very thorough, kind of covers all the bases and, you know, map filter reduce. It's one of those things. It's not specific to Python. You see these functions with the exact same names in, in many different programming languages. Yeah. And it's just one of those things that at some point uh, you want to be familiar with this stuff just to, to know that it exists and, and when sometimes it might be better to use something like that. It makes me think about this course that uh, we'll have coming out soon about inner functions. Oh yeah. The, the idea that Python <laughs> is sort of a jack of all trades type of language, <laughs> you know, it, it's trying to do all these different things or at least allowing you to have access to them. So, you know, one of them is obviously as we've discussed now, functional programming, um, you can approach Python in that way if you want. You can approach it with you know, all these kind of different ways of like, you know, what makes sense? Do you want to do object oriented? Do you want to do you know functional? Or do you want to do these other different styles? Which I, I think is powerful. It can be a little, you know, confusing because there are so many options. Yeah, but I think that's that's kind of a a unique you know, kind of powerful thing about Python and, and something that I did not understand initially. Like I I felt like it was very easy to, (laughs) to be lured into one area or another and, and not, not realize that, you know, you know, these are people that are coming from Java and they really want it to be like this. And these are people that are coming from this and they really want it to be like that, you know? Right. Hey kid, come over here check this out. You're like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So suddenly you're like in a different camp of, of, uh, style, you know, which is interesting. Exactly. And it it does kind of seem, you know, it like some of this stuff kind of goes against like the Zen of Python. The, there's one that says something like, you know, there should, there should be one and preferably uh, only one way to, to do something. And you look at something like filter or map and it's like, well, I can, I can, I can do these multiple ways, uh, at least two. Yeah. you know, replace it with a, with a list comprehension or something like that. But, but at the same time, you know, it's, you know, it's just the nature of, of languages to be completely honest, right? Like it, they're going to grow over time right. as, as right, more right, and more right. people use them. They're coming from different backgrounds and, you know, it's true of, of not just programming languages, but also human language. It's uh, it's just a natural uh, thing, but it's something like map reduce filter. It's like, it's, it's sort of like this iconic thing that you find in in so many different languages that it just makes sense to have it uh, in, in Python. Yeah, that totally makes sense. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It covers the types of things a Python developer should know when starting to work with JavaScript. It's titled Python versus JavaScript for Python developers. The course is based on an article by Bartosz Zaczynski, And in the course, Christopher Trudeau takes you through where JavaScript comes from and where it's used, how JavaScript's type system is different from Python's, how to write functions in JavaScript, and the two ways of creating objects in JavaScript, JavaScript's general language syntax, 
along with surprises and behaviors in JavaScript that Python programmers wouldn't expect. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to navigate the differences between two of the most popular programming languages. If you want to share your Python code and projects with others, it's highly likely you want to do that over the internet. And it would be helpful to be prepared for what you can expect when working with JavaScript. All real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. The lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find the link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. My next one is kind of taking off from a project I had mentioned, I don't know, probably (laughs) more than six months ago. And it was about the Raspberry Pi 400, the sort of packaged version of the Raspberry Pi that is sort of a keyboard with all the ports right on the back of it. So you can just plug it into an HDMI monitor or a television if you want. It kind of reminds me of the Commodore 64 or some of the early computers that I had where I just attached it to a TV, you know, (laughs) which, uh, you know, seems like ages ago. But I think the computer itself is around $70 US. Something like that, yeah. But this, this guy, Don Watkins, he's listed as a correspondent for this site, um, opensource.com, and he has two different articles that I kind of wanted to touch on. The first is, I guess the core one is, uh, how do I, is uh, called How Do I Teach Python on the Raspberry Pi 400 at the Public Library? And I'll touch on that a little bit more, but one that was associated with what was his review of the Raspberry Pi 400, and he was reviewing it as the $100 package. So it came with like an SD card, came with a mouse, came with a power supply, uh, came with like kind of all the things you need. And then I think one of the most interesting things that it comes with is it has a manual. (laughs) And he pointed that out. And I was like, yeah, you know, you buy a Mac today or you buy a PC today and there is no book. I mean, they, yeah. it's like literally like, you know, maybe like some kind of like warnings or other like little minor things that maybe needed to be required to be included. But I remember getting manuals with computers, you know, and that's something that I think is vastly useful in certain circumstances, especially something like this, where it's an inexpensive computer and you might be using it in a circumstance where the person maybe has never had a computer or, you know, I, I just talked to, to Marlene Mangami in the last episode and we were talking about, you know, how in Zimbabwe, she's trying to set up these classroom situations and so forth. And I thought about this computer and we had talked about books and the idea of like giving a kid who may not be able to take the computer home. They may not, you know, have a monitor. They may not have all these other tools, but maybe they could take home the documentation and they could read more about it. And in this case, it's, it's more than a manual. It's like, you know, it has projects and other kinds of places to explore. So it's, it's, you know, it's this sort of like documentation that seems to be missing in, in so many things these days that that I, I think is kind of neat that that that's included in that way. Uh, so anyway, so I, I like that review of it. And then his review also kind of really focused a lot on, you know, hey, can I set this thing up to to be you know, with a webcam and and get it to be you know something where like remote learning could be used also you know based upon the last year of school yeah and so forth. And so he finally did get like a Logitech webcam to work with it 
And most video conferencing stuff, after a little bit of wrangling, he was able to get them going. The one exception was Zoom, which is interesting. Um, I don't know if that's a limitation of the version of Linux. But anyway, uh, he was able to get like Google, uh, is it Meet now? <laughs> I always get the names wrong. But anyway, yeah. and a couple other ones that were uh, out there. So that, that's a neat review of it. And then the the focus of the teaching it in, at the public library is that he had been wanting to get back to teaching really, you know, after the last year and wanted to figure out a way to kind of give back and, and get back to teaching actual Python in a you know, sort of situation like that. So he was able to, to work with a, a library in New York and get them, you know, and a kind of a community based group to kind of get a little bit of funding. And they were able to buy like five of the computers and then some inexpensive monitors. And I was just trying to look at like how much like a, like a simple VGA flat screen monitor is. And it's unfortunately close to the price of the computer, but generally, you know, like around 80 to maybe $120, depending on the size you want. But anyway, that's something that could be, you know, reused. And, and again, if you have a, a Raspberry Pi, you can plug it into pretty much anything with an HDMI connection and yeah. you, you know, you got a display for it. So um, most TVs today, his goal is to really just get people working with it and so he he's you know it's a fairly short article but he really liked the idea of like how easy this was to kind of get going and set up he talks about using it with the mu python editor yeah which i know that we've talked about in circumstances with sean and kelly uh the teaching python podcast and they're sort of fans of that editor too it's very popular for you know things like circuit python which i'm going to be focusing on soon uh, and then he mentioned a couple books that he was able to get, Teach Your Kids to Code and Python for Kids. And yeah. And so then, you know, he what's really cool is, you, you know, he was able to work with like the turtle module and get them going. I know that's something that we have uh, not only a, a good article on, but a, a nice video course inside there. And at the end of it, you're creating a little game, which is which is pretty fun for kids to kind of get them going. So yeah, it's a neat set of articles. Uh, I've had a couple of people reach out and wonder, you know, what are other resources that we have that, you know, can help people get into the, not only, you know, teaching of Python, but some of the resources that are available to, to kind of get set up on their own to replicate something like this. And, you know, it's a fairly inexpensive footprint, you know, for the, yeah. the price of like a modern uh, Macintosh computer, you could get five, of these computers and their monitors and <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, and they come with books and all that sort of stuff. And for teaching Python, you know, it doesn't need to be this overt large no. set of uh, things. It, it's like the, the goal is more, I don't know. I, I think about that sometimes like, you know, like if the, if the computer is kind of more centric toward doing, you know, programming and that sort of stuff, like, you know, could that be less of a distraction? Not saying that you can't, you know, go on the web and so forth uh, with these computers. I'm just saying it's less of the focus in some ways. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. These, I mean, the, it, it doesn't even come with the screen. It only comes with the keyboard. Yeah. So like, it's definitely not like the idea is not that you're going to like consume content on this device. <laughs> it's, it's clearly right, more right. for like creating or, 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 uh, you know, learning, but yeah, I mean, it's just one of the things that struck me when I read this article was that, he had been, uh, he being Don, the author, had been wanting to 
do this, you know, this community class at the at the library. And then uh, we, ha- you know, we had the, the pandemic and he's in New York. And I think, you know, things got really, really, you know, uh, I don't, it says he's from Franklinville on, which I don't know where that is, but, but, you know, New York got hit really hard there early on in the, yeah, they did. in the pandemic here in the U.S. And, you know, things got locked down and, and he really wanted to get back to this. And I think he mentions in the article that, you know, he had been searching for, you know, someone to kind of sponsor this and, you know, help pay for some of this stuff. But in the end, he was able to just kind of self-fund it. Like he was able to just buy these computers for the the people that wanted to take, take the class. The barrier to entry is in some ways, or at least, you know, the financial barrier to in, entry to all this stuff is in some ways, I think the lowest it's ever been in the history yeah, of, it's kind of computing. Amazing. And it's, yeah, it's just really incredible what, uh, what, you, what you can do. And from the perspective of someone who's teaching that even he was able to just fund it himself. Like that t- is just kind of mind blowing to me. It's like, Hey, I'm going to have this class right. of students and you know what, I'm just going to buy them all com- computers. And it wasn't that long ago, that would be a lot of money. And, right. uh, and now he was, you know, it, it made it affordable and within his reach to even just, you know, donate and contribute to that. So that's, that's really amazing. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I th- you know, I think that if you're just learning Python, you know, you don't need, you don't need a MacBook pro. You don't need the latest, whatever, right. You can use just an old laptop with, uh, with Linux on it. And the beauty of, you know, Python being open source, you know, now the, the open source operating systems and everything. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just kind of mind boggling. I mean, I remember, I remember when my family got our first computer and I remember like, just, you know, that was, it was a privilege to have a computer (laughs) at that time. And, and I remember even, you know, past that going to the computer shop, like we would go get it repaired and I'd go into the computer shop and look at the, the computers they had in there. And, you know, it was like these computers, the Raspberry Pi 400 is probably more powerful than those computers. (laughs) And those computers were like $2,000. And I remember just thinking like, man, would it be so cool to have something like that? But, oh, it's so much money. Like we'll never, we'll never have anything like that. Now it's like, you know, (laughs) $70 computers. Yeah. It's the price of, you know, like a a family (laughs) going out to dinner or what have you, you know, like depending on where you go, you know, (laughs) it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Well, that kind of, was leading us into projects as we went um, yeah. sort of building on top of it. So what's your project for this week? Mine is this really cool project that actually Dan, Dan Bader found and, and he was the one that uh, sent it into the PyCoders, you know, as something that we should talk about. I took a look at it. Uh, I've not actually played around with it, but, but it just is a really cool little project. It is, it's called novel writer. It's a plain text editor designed for writing novels assembled from many smaller text documents. It's got a minimal mm-hmm. formatting syntax inspired by Markdown. It allows you to add metadata for comments, a synopsis, and like cross-referencing things. And this is, again, one of those projects where it's not so much like, I think you should use this, as much as like, man, go check out this this repository. It's it's Python. They're using the uh, Qt, uh, Qt5 GUI framework. So if, if you're looking for a good uh, example of a of a GUI program in Python, 
like this is this is something to go ch- check out. It's got a lot of cool little features, and they've also got the you know, the re- repository has been set up. It's got tests. It's got they're using. I don't know if it's Circle CI, but you know it's got uh, continuous integration. It's got you know the packaging stuff. It's got a setup.py and setup.cfg uh, file. So it really you know, and code coverage as well on on the on the testing side. So you can see how much of you know the code is actually being executed when you run your tests. So it's really kind of the full thing. Like if if you want to see a modern example of a GUI application in Python, it's a really cool repo to check out. Nice. Yeah. So. So mine is building off of a project that we mentioned a couple times, which was called is called Rich. It's from yeah. Will McGugan. You know, we had a, a post back in February, or one of the other things we were talking about of a group of people taking Rich, and you know, again, it's a library for rich text and colors and formatting inside of the terminal. And in February, this group, and he wrote about it in his own blog. They built. A, a terminal dashboard using rich and and that one was for like uh it was showing like github in real time you know using it to kind of render it out he was very intrigued by these people doing that and so he kind of went and started focusing on it and after that he just announced his his own version of that it's called textual yeah and it's a text user interface, a TUI, T-U-I, yeah. and it's uh, built with Rich as the renderer underneath it. And it's pretty slick what he's built. And you know, he gives a nice demo of the dashboard and sort of what's happening. And he has added uh, like hover, you know, mouse hover focus and scrolling across these separate windows, key bindings so that you could type a key and one of the textual little windows will pop in or pop out appearing and disappearing inside of like a larger layout so you can kind of like dismiss something or you know look check another area and so forth yeah and then uh he's also been focusing on just really getting that scrolling right and uh like indicators and and things like that so it's it's neat to see this uh you know text-based uh ui sort of expand upon it i expect to see more what we would have called uh, command line interface tools start to uh, maybe use this as a way to kind of you know expand on it and give you a little more of a UI than just simply text coming into it. And one thing I wanted to mention is uh, that I, I was looking at Rich and and the the repo for that, and I got to near the bottom of it. And this is something I'm going to be talking about a little bit more. Rich is used by so many different tools, yeah, just because people really like you know, what it can do as far as making, you know, the terminal experience <laughs> a yeah. little more enjoyable and, and, and the whole, like, there's like a, this whole realm of, of uh, REPL replacements, which I know you've been working on yeah, that use tools like Rich underneath it. it. So it's, you know, become kind of one of these very useful tools across the board. And it's actually part of uh, the Tidelift subscription for enterprise and so he talks a little bit about that. And I recently spoke to some people from Tidelift, and I'm hoping to have them on the show soon, kind of explain you know what's going on there. And again, that is one of these focuses not only on you know funding of open source and keeping open source going, but also kind of a security thing, which I'm also talking to Dustin Ingram um, really soon to talk about his talk at uh, PyCon and sort of like, what do you need to be aware of as a developer as far as security and also as a you know Python user? And uh, and 
I feel like the tide lift thing kind of builds on top of that too. So it's going to be a fun set of conversations kind of building on all those ideas to, you know, pay attention. But it's, it's funny, like how, you know, how much open source it builds on top of, you know, the shoulders of these other packages and so forth. And Rich is definitely in there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Textual if they, uh, if it gets the same kind of embrace. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm just looking at it now. It's the used by on the, on the GitHub repository. If you scroll down a little bit on the right hand side, you see used by and it's, uh, th- uh, 3,800. <laughs> 3,800, uh, other just repositories <laughs> list this list rich as a, uh, as a dependency. So yeah, it's, it's quite a lot. And yeah, it's an interesting topic. I mean, it, I'm, I'm curious to hear the conversation you have with, uh, with Dustin and everything. Cause it's one of these things where, you know, open source is not just, you know, people building passion projects or hobby projects. You know, this is, it's, it, I mean, Python is, is a classic example, right? I mean, the Python language is open source. It has been since the beginning. And yet it's a critical piece of infrastructure for many, many enterprise products. So, it's just an important topic of, you know, and the, the, like the tide lift, the, you know, supporting people and, you know, the GitHub sponsorships that they have now, all this stuff is, is a real need. Yeah. Especially like something like rich even now is probably being used by some stuff where, you know, if, if something breaks, I mean, he's getting potentially some very angry, um, (laughs) emails and, and things from people that it's like, you know, their, their livelihoods depend on, on this thing working. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very, curious to hear about what Dustin has to say about all this stuff, if that's what you guys uh, end up talking about. That's part of it. Yeah. Part of it is like just the security uh, structures yeah. and, and stuff that we were, we focused on a couple times on the show. So also the, the name squatting stuff right. and yeah. a couple other yeah. articles we've talked about, but we also talk about just the idea of dependencies and in that. And then the tide lift one, I think will be really interesting too. Cause I, I feel like it's a, it's an answer, you know, definitely f- for enterprise yeah. and if that helps the entire ecosystem then that i think that will be amazing and so that, you know we've asked like oh, how how can people give back and how you know can you get your company to be involved in giving back cuz there's so many organizations that use all these tools and so right it's a you know it's interesting time not only for security but for ongoing support and keeping open source going but also finding ways to to get those maintainers uh funds and and support in, right. in kind of different ways too not only just monetary so yeah yeah well good stuff yeah yeah it was a, a lot of fun stuff this week i just ordered my raspberry Pi 400 nice. this morning so <laughs> i'll uh maybe i'll report back on that i ordered the one that does come with the book cool and all that sort of stuff i just i i the the other ones where you gotta like buy a little case and you know like a, potentially a little fan and all these things that go in and i just I'm like, man, I really like it to be in just all in one package. Yeah. I, I kind of like that design, even, you know, because like it's not that much bigger than the, you know, finding a, a keyboard for it. Most of the keyboards that I have that came with like PCs and stuff like that have, you know, like 101 key with the number keypad and everything. Yeah. And I think this thing might actually be slightly smaller in some ways. Yeah. So, well, thanks for coming on the show and bringing all these articles again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. See you, Chris. And don't forget, you can get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. 
I want to thank David Amos for joining me again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.